0: He had a bar up off Route 3 in Jersey, and he invited me up. And it's, you know, you sit down and go over the games and talk about it and all that kind of stuff. And so they played the injury behind us. Neither one of us looked at it. And I turned to him and I said, you know, Lawrence, you and I are going to be connected through this thing for the rest of our lives. We know how it affected me. It ended my career. How did it affect you? Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top
1: speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord. Welcome to the Beyond Speaking podcast. Our guest today is the Joe Theismann. Joe's a former Notre Dame great NFL MVP, Super Bowl champion, a broadcaster for nearly a quarter of a century. He's the author of How to Become a Champion Every Day, a business owner and active with multiple charities like St. Jude Children's Hospital, huge list. Uh, Joe is one of the most popular speakers in the country, focusing on topics like leadership, goal setting, change, and teamwork. So Joe, thank you so much for joining us.
0: You're welcome, Brian. It's great to be with you.
1: Now we're coming up here on football season, um, which obviously great time to have you. You were, you know, legendary quarterback and at, you know, Notre Dame and Washington. Um, You know, how do you see You know, we talk about life, business, everything else. There's so much change. How do you see the NFL changing uh, from when you played?
0: Well, I think um, the game's fundamentally the same. You still have to block. You still have to tackle. You throw the ball, people have to catch it. And when they catch it, people have to tackle. So, I mean, fundamentally, the game is the same. I think it's a bit more wide open. When I played, I think the only team that used the shotgun was the Dallas Cowboys. Hmm. Now, every team uh, works out of the gun. That's one way. Um, you had three receiver sets, which were a little bit unusual at that time. A lot of two tight ends, a lot of one tight end, two backs. Fullbacks were basically employed at that time in the National Football League. Uh, now they're somewhat like dinosaurs. You get one, you got to hold on to it. But there are a few out there. And, and we you know, I get a kick out of people that come up and say, you know, the athletes of today are better than the athletes when you played. And my question is: Then why are so many of the guys I played with in the Hall of Fame and- <laughs> the best that ever played the game? Uh, but I think the there's a the general consensus is the style of play is a little bit different defensively. I think you see uh, more versatile linebackers, see more versatile defensive linemen. The safety position hasn't changed all that much. The wide receiver position, or I should say, the corner position, still I think is a premium. Mm-hmm. You, know, you go through these cycles where you want little quick corners and then all of a sudden people get big receivers. So now you want big corners. Um, so the game runs in a little bit of a cycle that way. But I would say overall, the speed of the game um, is a little bit different. I think generally speaking, there are a lot more people that are fast. We had some that were fast, but mm-hmm. now you have a lot more at different positions that are extremely athletic and extremely quick.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah like you yeah, a lot of people don't know you were a punt returner re, yeah punt returner when you first came in could you could you have been a punt returner now
0: yeah i, I probably i probably would have but i probably wouldn't
1: <laughs> have picked up many yards <laughs> <laughs> i thought know, you had I, one run for 44 yards i'm like that was a pretty good one that, you know I,
0: I i had some i had some decent runs i mean i averaged a little over 10 yards yeah which i, I think any coach would take today um But I never, you know, I never had a chance to break one. I actually, what people don't realize is my first seven games in college at the University of Notre Dame, I actually was a punt returner with a guy by the name of Bob Gladio. Mm -hmm. So I started my punt returning career in college. And then after Terry handwriting got hurt, I went from punt returner to starting quarterback at the University of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. I went from punt returner to uh, sit on the bench a little while and then starter at the uh, at with the uh, at that time we were the Washington Redskins. So, I, I love it though. I mean, if the good Lord granted me a healthy body for one game, uh, people have asked, "What would you do?" Let me go. Play, let me go return punts. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. It's so cool. It's you against eleven guys. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the neatest thing in the world. And uh, you know, there's an uh, analytical part of it where you want to see. You know, number one, should I catch it? Number two, should I fair catch it? Mm-hmm. Uh, then the other part of it is: is there a little seam here? I might be able to get through. Uh, I wasn't that fast, but if you're running one way and somebody's running the other, you don't need to be that fast. You just mm-hmm. have to make a miss. Somebody asked me earlier today. They said, um, "You know, you were pretty quick." I said, "I, I said I, I was pretty quick. I wasn't necessarily fast, but I was quick to be able to avoid the uh, the big hits."
1: That wasn't the only change that you went through from from punt returner to quarterback at Notre Dame. You also went through a name change there. Could you could you talk about that for a minute?
0: Yeah, I uh, as a matter of fact, um, I grew up in South River, New Jersey, and I was always Joe Thiesman. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to the University of Notre Dame, I had a really good junior year. Roger Valdeseri, our sports information director, called me in the office. He said, Joe, how do you pronounce your last name? I said, it's Thiesman. He said, no, it's not. It's actually pronounced Thiesman. I said, no, it's not. It's actually pronounced Thiesman. He said, no, Joe, your last name is pronounced Thiesman. So I said, give me the phone. I picked up the phone. I called my dad back home in New Jersey. Get my dad on the phone. My dad says, what's up, Joe? I said, Dad, uh, I got a question for you. He says, fine. Uh, I said, how do you pronounce our last name? And there's like this pause on the phone. My dad <laughs> comes back on. He says, are you OK? You're a senior <laughs> in college. You don't know how to pronounce your last name. What's going on? I said, I'll explain it later. Just tell me, how do you pronounce it? He said Thiesman. I turned I hung the phone up, turned to Roger. I says, Roger, look, my last name is Thiesman. I know I just got the phone my dad. <laughs> he said, I want to tell you something. There's a trophy out there called the Heisman Trophy. It goes best college football player in the country. We think you have a chance to win that trophy, but we're not just going to count on your athletic ability. Heck no. We're not even going to count on the reputation of the University of Notre Dame. But we think by just simply changing the pronunciation of your last name from Thiesman to Theisman to Ryan with Heisman, we can get you that trophy. So it was really the first, I guess you could say, public campaign. Mm-hmm. To try and get someone the Heisman Trophy. Jim Plunkett actually won it that year, and I finished second uh, in the balloting. And people have come up to me and it's really funny they say, "Man, it must be really neat to have a trophy named after you." <laughs> and my response is, "If, but tr- if the trophy was named after me, I probably would have won it." So <laughs> it was, it was, it was a, a unique thing. And today, this today, I am, my children are, uh, my wife, we're all Theismans. Yeah, we're all Theismans except my sister Patty. She stays with Theismann because she lives back in Jersey.
1: So, um, you know, going forward, you know, as you as you've learned these different things, you've gone through so many different parts of career, whether it's, you know, college, pro football, uh, announcer um, and a business owner as well. What are some of the best leadership lessons that you've learned? Obviously, marketing is important, you know, with the Theismann Theismann. What are some of the biggest leadership lessons that you've learned?
0: I think one of the most important things is to learn is to, to don't think that you know everything. I think, I think humility is very important at the leadership position. You can be humble and strong and lead, but to think that, you know, everything is a big, big misconception. The other thing is, is there's strength in the people that you hire or the people that you surround yourself with. And this is a great, this is a great lesson I learned from Joe Gibbs, my head coach, The, the people that he had in charge of the defense in charge of special teams the tight end coaches, the running back coaches. These were all individuals that that were like-minded in their work ethic when it came to the way Joe worked, because he slept at Redskin Park at that time three nights a week, because that's what we called it. But he slept there three nights a week. Uh, I'd walk in and coaches would be asleep on the floor. I mean, they were committed men. So to me, it's number one, know what you don't know. And secondly, surround yourself with people that you believe can be great teachers and can do the job that you want them to do and expect them to do. And the third thing is, is let everybody know who you are and what you stand for. So that there's no question. When you go to work, people will understand why you're there and be specific. I I think of, when I think of leadership, I think of Bill Belichick and, and I've analyzing Bill, there's two things that I think he's done in New England that are incredible. Number one, he's created an environment up there with an expectation. I think quite often we don't expect enough from people and people don't expect enough from themselves. So it's a great chance to be able, as you lead them, to give them a chance to have an expectation, to be able to go out and execute the things that they need to do. Um, And and and, and and to be a great leader, I think you have to be accountable to yourself and the people have to be accountable to you. Mm -hmm. And those are some of the things that I think are very important when it comes to
1: leadership. How did you change from the time that you started playing in the NFL to the time you finished?
0: I think we all grow with, through experience. Um, you, I look at the young quarterbacks today, and they, everybody says, "Well, this guy's ready to step in." No, they're not. Not in the not in the slightest. Um, there's so much to learn. I mean, every day. My my favorite saying is this, Brian: "The day you stop learning is the day you stop living." And that applies to every aspect of life. It's, it's what I based my book off of called How to Be a Champion Every Day. Mm-hmm. The, the you know the the analogies between the world of sports, the world of business, and our own lives. They're all the same. And, and you have to continue to learn. And I think that's the one thing you know why are, what you do as a, a person in business or in our sport is you learn a lot more, which means you have to do less hard work. It teaches you to be able to to really work smarter. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you take care of your body? What's your diet? You know, how do you you interact with teammates? They're all aspects of learning. How do you learn? How do you process information? I had a conversation this morning with someone. We were talking about there are certain guys that can look at film and they can look at a chalkboard or an overhead and look at diagrams and it makes sense to them. Now you put a playbook in front of them and they look at diagrams and they don't have the same learning capability. Hmm. You have to figure out how people learn. I, you know, I'm a very visually driven person. I can see something visually and it, it's a, it's like a, a photograph in my mind and then I can have a recall. It's like when I studied defenses, when I got up under center, I looked out It would look, you know, it was like 11 people in different places, but I knew where they were. And then as the, as the play was, going forward, I would understand where their movements should be. And therefore, if you took an overlay and put the routes on top of it, you'd be able to find where the open receivers should be. Mm -hmm. So, but that was all visual for me. I mean, I could learn from a book too, which you had to, to learn the plays, but visually seeing it, I I, I learned quicker. So it was experience that helped me grow in the game of football, being able to, to make the mistakes, to correct the mistakes, to see what worked, to see what didn't work.
1: And, and speaking of change, you know, obviously one of the biggest stories, you know, that, that's involved in your life and everything else, November 18th, I think it was at 1985 or so. Can you walk us through that day, how your, how your life changed? Obviously something people have seen, they'd never forget it. But then how quickly did you make decisions on on the rest of your life after that?
0: Um, I'll answer the second question first. It yeah. took me about two years to really get over my injury mentally Mm -hmm. Uh, to recover mentally was one of the biggest challenges I had physically. I went through the process. I wanted to come back and play, but I was 35 years old. Mm -hmm. I was at a time when age 35 in the game was considered. You got to be out the door. You Mm -hmm. have to be out the door today. If you're 35 years old because of the lack of positions and keep in mind in the national football, League, you, you really have 90 quarterbacks. There's 90 positions to be filled. You know, how many of them are going to give you a chance to be able to win a championship? How many are going to give you a chance to have a winning season? Those numbers aren't great. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was at a point at, at that time in my career and also a time in football when you were gone. They couldn't get you out quick enough. Nowadays, it's probably a four-year contract for $25, 30000000 I mean, that's yeah. just, that's the way it is. And, and good for those people. I I don't begrudge anybody. I think it's absolutely great. But that night, I I really wasn't in the midst of a very good season. We were four and five. I wasn't playing well. I guess you could say I'd somewhat become full of myself with the success that I enjoyed. Um, I thought I was pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. And uh, that particular night, uh, I'll never forget it. You know, the good Lord enters our lives in different ways, and this is one night where I never went into shock. I remember everything getting ready for that game, sitting in my locker staring at the wall and having a heart to heart with myself, which I guarantee you anybody that's watching this did that during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You sat and you analyzed and you as well. I promise you you did. What Mm -hmm. am I going to do with my life? Where am I going? What's happening to the company? What direction am I going to go in? These are all the things, these are conversations that we have with ourselves. And I did that. I sat at the sat in my locker and stared at the wall and I said, all right, Joe, it's the giants, it's Monday night TV. It's your opportunity, which happens to be my favorite word, to go out and show the world that that Joe Thiesman that you love so much is back. Get up from my locker, start out of that locker room. And we used to have that, the logo of our helmet right above the exit sign. And for 12 years, I hit that logo. Never said a word. On this night, as I hit that logo, I said, tonight, your life's going to change, Joe. Little did I realize I was into prophecy. Went out on that field, seven for 10, touchdown pass figure, look out world, Joey's back. At Joe Theismann character that I love so much is back. When we start to turn the second quarter, Coach Gibbs calls a flea flicker, which simply put, I took the snap from center, turned around, hand the ball to big John Riggins, our fullback. He stopped at the line of scrimmage, pitched it back to me. The Giants should all be up there trying to tackle John. They weren't. They dropped back in the coverage. I looked to my safety valve to the right. He was covered. And then Lawrence Taylor grabbed my left shoulder. His right leg caught my right leg between the knee and the ankle. And uh, right off, off my left shoulder, I heard this pow, pow. Matter of fact, you could hear it on television. I've mm-hmm. only seen the injury once, but you could actually hear my leg breaking. And uh, and I remember laying on the ground and, you know, uh, Coach Gibbs comes up and he kneels down next to me and he, Joe, you've meant so much to this football team, Joe, this is a heck of a mess you've left me. And I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and we chuckled and then they wheeled me off that stadium. And I'd never heard an ovation like that before in my life. Everybody was just reaching out to this person who thought that he was a an island unto himself. He thought that he was the most important person on a football team. Um, you know, I'd sort of let material things to my life dictate the direction I wanted to go. But at that night, it, it began a reclamation project for me where I learned so many more important things about life through that experience, that uh, you're never alone in this world, that you have to worry and care about other people. You have, we're, we're here to serve, not to be served. Mm-hmm. I had that backwards. And I think that's the one thing I try and stress to people that the more you can do for someone, the way you can give back in time or money or whatever it can be to help someone else's life better, believe me, you're making your own life better. And so mm-hmm. for me, that was a night that, that changed everything. And there were a couple of sort of different things that happened. Uh, for example, that next Tuesday morning, when I'm in the hospital, the nurse comes walking in and she says, Mr. Thives and Mr. Taylor's on the phone. Would you like to speak to him? I said, give me the phone. Uh, I said, LT, is that you? He says, yeah, Joe, how you doing? I said, not very well. He says, right. <laughs> I said, why? You broke both bones in my leg for crying out loud. He said, Joe, you have to understand something. I don't do things halfway. Got to go to practice, talk to you later. Um, but he called <laughs> to see how it was. And we chuckle about that all the time. And there was another instance about four or five years after that, that LT had a bar up off of Route 3 in Jersey. And he invited me up. And it's, you know, you sit down and go over the games and talk about it and all that kind of stuff. And so they played the injury behind us. Neither one of us looked at it. And I turned to him and I said, you know, Lawrence, you and I are going to be connected through this thing for the rest of our lives. We know how it affected me. It ended my career. How did it affect you? And he said something I thought was very prophetic, Brian. He said, Joe, I learned a great lesson that night, that no matter how great you are at what you do, it can be over in an instant, and that every day you have to get the most out of your days. And you can't wait till tomorrow. And I tell people this all the time. If you've got a riff going on with somebody, if you're mad at someone, pick the phone up. Put it behind you. Because being mad at people and angry at people takes a lot of energy. It's a lot of negative energy you don't need in your life. And so, you know that I thought was very prophetic from Lawrence. Hey, man, live life today because you don't know. There's no guarantees about tomorrow.
1: Well, thanks for sharing that. That was one of the questions we, we'd gotten some, you know, questions from different people. One of those, Brandon Keel, You know, are you and Lawrence Taylor friends now? So I guess that uh, that well, answers that. Randy,
0: we are, and, and we and we actually have played golf together. But I won't let him stand where I don't see him. <laughs>
1: that makes that makes uh, that makes sense. Uh, he stuff. has
0: to be within my vision. That's all. I, hey. I'll play golf with you, but I got to be able to see it all the time.
1: I know that plays in the blind spot, too. That's uh, you. A lot of people know you from that movie as well. And uh, yeah, don't let if you take nothing else from this video, don't let Lawrence Taylor into your blind spot.
0: That's right.
1: (laughs) Very cool. Um, So you said it took about two years to uh, to really get mentally back into that. What were your and I know you're really big on goal setting. This kind of leads into that, you know, you're you're very big on actual People writing down their goals, making yes. that, how are you going to get there? Um, what process did you go through in that? And what would you advise people to do who are faced with a big change in life?
0: Well, I, I had to I had to reassess my life, first of all. Like I said, I had to, I had to be a different I had to be a different person than I was. I had to work on myself. I think that's one of the things that happens when you go through changes in your life is really look at who you are. You know, who have you been kidding? Who have you been lying to? Uh, you know, be truthful to yourself, be truthful for the things that you want to do, you know, seek the things you enjoy and have a passion for. That way it gives you joy in your life. And I think if you have joy in your life, you have meaning in your life. And, it, you know, when you wake up in the morning, it's like, I get something to look forward to. I think that was, that was important for me. And then also I got right into broadcasting. I stayed close to the game I loved. Uh, in 86, I wound up, you know, doing, you know, CBS for two years. And then I went on to ESPN for, I think, 18, 19 years, and then three years at the NFL Network. So uh, Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of different time around the game still. I love the game. I'd still work out for coaches. I'd throw defensive drills um, when my leg got better. It took two years for my leg to get better. Mm -hmm. And so as I healed physically, I healed mentally. And I kept thinking that, you know, what was I knew I wanted to get into broadcasting. I knew I loved the game and I wanted to learn as much as I could. Like I said, you know, my favorite saying is the day you stop learning is the day you stop living. In every aspect of life, and so I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to expand that, and then I got into the restaurant business. I had as many as six at one time, and and now I'm in, in various types of businesses. And and now I have a chance for the last forty years to be able to get out and uh, do motivational speeches, and, and really talk to people. I you could call them motivational. I I would like to uh, maybe identify them a little bit differently as insightful conversations, mm-hmm. using my examples from my life. To maybe give you a chance to look at what's going on in yours, and hopefully, you know, maybe not have to go through some of the trials and tribulations that are probably out there for all of us after you hear about some of the things that I've gone through, um, and and just wanting to be a better person all the way around, you know, wanting to serve people. I I I have a website called joetheisman.com. At that website, you you see a list of items that I sign for people, trading cards. Uh, pictures, jerseys, helmets, pennants. And all I do is ask for a donation to St. Jude mm-hmm. in a different dollar amount. I don't, I I take no money. I want no money. Um, and I wish I'd have done it sooner. I wish I had a chance when I played to realize how much you can contribute in, in any way you can. And for everybody out there, if there's some way that you can make someone's life better, if you can take some of the pain and pressure off of someone's life, that's why we're here. And so it, it took me a long time to learn, uh, not, uh, you know, it took me a, a time period, not a long time, you know, two, three, four years to finally find myself in going in that direction. And those were the things. And then I still write down goals in four areas, personal, professional, spiritual, and financial,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: personal, professional, spiritual, and financial. And, and I say to people, what do you want? What do you want in life? Take those four areas and think about it and write them down. And, and, and you know." They're not there forever. Your life changes, and so you amend them to different things. I mean, if you're single, that's one thing. if if you're if you have a partner or you're married, that's another thing. If you have children, that's another thing. You continue to evolve, and that's a big word is evolution as mm-hmm. an individual. To be able to evolve as a person is very important. And that helps me get in that direction when I identify. You know, I came out of a world of sports where we wrote things down. Mm-hmm. I walk in a locker room. there were the goals right in front of us. Many people that'll see this hopefully are in businesses, and you'll have meetings, and they'll write down what you're supposed to accomplish. Be it in our own lives, we don't take the time to write them down. Mm-hmm. You know, ni- roughly 98 percent of the people in this world don't take a pen in hand and write down a goal.
1: Yeah, you
0: know, it's. I think it's easier for people sometimes just to be like a, a ship without a rudder. You know, I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. Move from one current to another. If it comes up, I'll deal with it. Instead of being able to say, okay, this is where I want to go. This is the direction I want to go. And that may change, but at least you've created an opportunity for yourself to gain some direction.
1: I love one of the things you were talking about earlier is just making a difference in people's lives. So scoot back just a little bit with St. Jude. Um, what have what have you learned there and what are you most proud of uh, in your involvement with uh, with St. Jude?
0: It, it, the 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 people that make up St. Jude. The people that uh, the the families that are there. I mean, Danny Thomas created an incredible took a dream. He and he and a gentleman by the name of Richard Shadyak, um, they created this dream about having children be treated for cancer and not have to pay. Mm-hmm. From all over the world, people come and are you know we just had this past weekend was the Saint Jude Classic, uh, uh, Saint uh, FedEx Saint Jude Classic down in Memphis Tennessee where Saint Jude is located. But you you know, my daughter had open heart surgery at Children's Hospital National Medical Center in Washington, DC at the age of three. Mm-hmm. And the doctors were fabulous and magnificent. But the way the, all our, we were treated as a family, uh, they sat down and they explained what was go, what was going to happen to Amy. They explained the recovery process. Uh, you're, you're never alone at St. Jude. You're not going through this alone. So many people are there to help you on your journey. And the the young person's journey that's dealing with the cancers and dealing with the, the, the diseases, um, and like I said, it, it's 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 if you were to take a body and you think of the blood flowing through your body, it's the people. If St. Jude as a building is your body, it's the people that are the doctors, the researchers, the nurses, uh, everybody in that in that facility, everybody in that hospital. They're the bloodline that that keeps it going. And, and, and it's just, you know, you just can't do enough. I mean, the courage that these people show, these young people show the courage that they come in, you know, they don't know if there's a tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, and to, to see, just to to talk to them, to to be around them. Boy, if you don't feel good leaving there, I'm sorry, you you really probably are never going to feel
1: good. Yeah, they do some amazing stuff there. We're uh, oh gosh, we're just they're... down the road. We're in Nashville, so I've done the the marathon down there, uh, the St. Jude marathon in the winter, and it's uh, it's amazing what they do there. So, um, but uh, one switching gears a little bit here, I want to get to some uh, some of the more of the the reader questions that we had. Some of the ones from social media. Um, well, this one's from Jacob Lytle in North Carolina. What's your funniest or most memorable moment as a broadcaster?
0: Oh my gosh! Oh. I'll never forget sitting across from Mike Singletary when he was a middle linebacker the Bears, and he started to talk about football. Now he comes in; he's the most gentle, calm person in the world. You get him on a field, he's totally different. But mm. he talked about philosophy of football. When I left that room, I was ready to go put my uniform back on. <laughs> it's it, it's it, another another incredible moment in broadcasting was when I had a chance to be with Reggie White. Reggie had torn his right hamstring and uh we're sitting in the meeting and i said well Reg, you're probably not going to play he said he so said i'm going to play he said and 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 this is his words he said the good lord will heal this for me i put my fist his leg was so big i put my fist in the back where the hamstring was torn i could mm-hmm. feel it and i'm thinking there's no way i mean he went out and he played football a, a tremendous man of faith mm-hmm. uh, those are moments that that stay with me but during the course of a game I, we we had so many uh, chris carter's 1000th catch uh, Flipper Anderson going for 200 yards receiving. <laughs> when he was with the Rams. I mean, we had these incredible moments. Lawrence Taylor uh, playing the New Orleans Saints. When the Giants played the Saints, he had his arm in a sling, had one sack, one fumble recovery, one forced fumble, I believe. Wow. Um, you know, covering Deion Sanders. Now, I've told Deion this. I think he's the greatest player of all time. And he wow. said to me, well, why do you say that? I said, because every team you went to, you made better. Because he was it was phenomenal. You know, watching Randy Moss. Randy Moss used to love to just hang out and and play little games on Saturday when you're out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, to see these people and get to know these young men away from the game uh, and who they are as people is one of the greatest things that I ever had happen to me in broadcasting.
1: So, uh, question here from Brandon Porter: uh, Who is your favorite team to beat, and why is it the Cowboys? Uh, who was
0: my favorite team <laughs> team I was the Cowboys? <laughs> Actually, it was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, though. No.
1: <laughs> really? Really? No.
0: No. <laughs> it was, it That's was, a good story. I thought I had a scoop. Uh, no, it was the Cowboys. I mean, because, first of all, um, I used the Cowboys as a, a, a way of validation. I, I, when I was in high school, we used to play New Brunswick High School. And we were always playing on Thanksgiving Day, and it was a big game. So that, if, if I played well against them, I sort of validated myself. I was 152 pounds. And then when I went to college and played the University of Southern California, when we were at Notre Dame, if I played well against them, I I belonged. The Dallas Cowboys to me were always the barometer by which I measured myself. You know, I belonged if I could play well against them because they had so many all pros, so many, you know, such a history there, you know, Roger Staubach and and everybody, Randy White, Ed Tuttle Jones. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and 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 George Allen really sort of ingrained that in us in 1974, when I joined the football team, you know, it was all about the Cowboys. They were going to win the division or we were going to win the division. And it had to do with the competition being at such a high level that you, you just wanted to beat them. And the fans went nuts. I mean, they went totally <laughs> crazy. Now, by this is this to sort of give the, the, the person that asked the question, a better idea in the end of the, People think that the most enjoyable game I ever played in and the biggest game of my life was the Super Bowl. It was a big game and it was a great moment in my life. And for to this day, I continue to do things because, you know, I, I have a championship ring as a part of a football team. But the greatest game I ever played in, had the chance to be a part of, was the NFC Championship game at RFK Stadium when we beat the Cowboys for the right to go to the Super Bowl in January of two, of, of 1982. When we when we beat the Cowboys at home and our own fans were there and they were banging their feet on these aluminum seats that were on the field. And I stood on the sidelines and I get goosebumps telling this story. (laughs) The ground beneath my feet was shaking. Literally, the ground was shaking beneath. my, And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is the most unreal thing I've ever gone through in my life. And so they were good. We were good. We didn't like them. George perpetuated it. And, you know, we just kept it going. And we felt like, you know, we knew that it would be one of us would be standing at the end. And actually, it's an interesting cycle in that division. The Giants went through their period of time. Mm-hmm. The Eagles went through a short and brief period of time. We went through ours and the Cowboys went through theirs. So everybody had their moments in that division. But for me, it was always you know the Cowboys were the team that I wanted to play well against, and who the heck would build a stadium with a giant hole in the middle of it that they couldn't <laughs> close? I used to, I, I used to get the living daylights knocked out of me, and I would lay there at Texas Stadium, and I'd be gasping for air, going, and I'd look up, and I'm thinking, what? Why is there a stupid hole in this stadium? find <laughs> out loud, couldn't you just cover it? But uh, it was um, it was it was always you always got up for for a Cowboy game. If you weren't up for a Cowboy game, you didn't have a pulse.
1: Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your stories on leadership and goal setting and team building and and so much else. And so thank you for coming on and being part of the uh, Beyond Speaking podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you again.
1: Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guests, go to beyondspeak.com. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen.